It's been yet another whirlwind week in the news, so it's okay if you're sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, I made it to the weekend, and now I have time to digest everything. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. And on this long weekend, we've got springtime stories for you about graduating, getting ready to work, and why you were getting all those terms of service emails from companies right now. But we're going to start the show with Starbucks. On Tuesday, the company will close 8,000 stores to conduct racial bias training for 175,000 workers. That, of course, follows the outrage after two black men were arrested in a Philadelphia Starbucks while they were waiting for a friend. Recently, companies have embraced bias trainings as a way to get ahead of or get out from under similar incidents. But we wanted to know whether these trainings really work and how companies measure their effectiveness. So we have Khalil Smith. He's the head of diversity and inclusion practice at the Neuroleadership Institute, and he works with a number of big companies. Welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. You know, I read some of your work, and you were making the argument that often trainings, particularly mandatory trainings, can be counterproductive. How do you run one that's effective? One of the reasons that mandatory training and just a a lot of diversity or unconscious bias training in general is ineffective um, is because at times it can increase what we would refer to as difference focus, calling out you've got this group over here and this group over here, and we want you all to appreciate how different you are. Mm. And while that can sound wonderful, what it actually does from a kind of psychological standpoint is it creates in-groups and out-groups. In a lot of other instances, it makes one party feel really bad bad about certain behaviors and potentially makes another party feel like they have been robbed of power or that they have been told that you're kind of weak and incapable of taking care of yourself. And so if we just change the entire infrastructure, then everything will be better. The best type of training is one that helps people recognize that bias is natural. Um, Bias in and of itself is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, What we want to do is mitigate it selectively when it's not productive. When we think about this in the context of Starbucks or any other big company, um, they are often trying to do this and make money at the same time. How do you do this in a way that, you know, is cost effective or is that even possible? Like, do, do you need, you know, ongoing training in the office with people all the time? It's it's a great question, and you don't necessarily need ongoing training. What you do need are ongoing behaviors. Mm -hmm. And so you can take the analogy of going to the gym and trying to get healthy. Um, It's a matter of, like, do I need a gym membership? Well, a gym membership will help you, but if all you do is say, I'm not going to change how I eat, I'm not going to change any other activity, I'm just going to go to the gym every now and then, you're probably not going to see the results that you ultimately want. And unconscious bias training is very similar, is if you just institute a training, and then you go back to doing exactly what you were doing before, you're not going to actualize the real benefits of the training. And then what really comes in is to follow through. If you see a senior leader in your business who is demonstrating bias, whether unconsciously or consciously, do you really believe enough in what you're trying to accomplish that you would call that leader out despite the other wonderful things that they might be doing? You really dig into the idea of building habits, not intentions, which I think is particularly interesting. You know, often in conversations, particularly around race, you have uh, a white person on the defense who says, well, that's not what I believe. And what I found interesting uh, about some of the work you do is you say, like, kind of doesn't matter. It matters what you do. 
in a lot of ways, and this may be controversial, I actually don't care what you believe, whether you believe that all people are created equal and yet in your actions you don't demonstrate that. Or quite honestly, if you believe the opposite of that, um, because ultimately the gap between intentions and actions is where so much gets lost in translation. And so we teach people quite often, how can you be more aware of what you're saying, what you're doing, the way that you're coming across um, so that you are enabling other people to really understand your intent? Because that transparency is super helpful for people. You obviously are a believer in these trainings. Um, For people who aren't or who are listening to this and who are skeptical, how can you measure that they work? There are uh, any number of things. I mean, a, a quick search online would show you thousands of results from really reputable organizations um, that have clearly identified that increasing the diversity of your organization, decreasing the bias of your decisions, and increasing the quality of inclusive behaviors throughout your organization has significant benefits in any number of ways. And so those can be things like increased employee retention, which drives down costs. It can be impl- increased employee engagement, um, which will also help with things like um, discretionary effort, that people put more effort into the work that you do. It increases creativity. It decreases absenteeism. um, And when you look at boards that have a wider representation of of diversity, not just all female or all male, um, they wind up performing in the top quartile in their industries. And so there is just a wealth of information that demonstrates that this is really beneficial. I think where the question really comes in is, can you deliver unconscious bias training and then just walk away and say, great, we checked the box, we're done? Right. And the answer is no. You can't. So what, what do you do? Starbucks is doing the right thing by saying, we recognize there's a challenge. We're going to close our stores at a significant cost to ourselves. But if they stop there and don't also think about what are the habits that we want to see day to day? What are the actual behaviors that we're going to coach people to and support them with and clearly articulate? And then on top of that, what are the things that the company has put in place that will help me make the optimal decision as often as possible? If you say this unconscious bias training is super important, and then on May 30th, after it's done, we never hear a word of it again. If you stop there, you're missing the larger picture and you're missing true behavior change. Khalil Smith, head of diversity and inclusion practice at the Neuroleadership Institute. Thank you so much for your time. Lizzie, thank you so much. You can head on over to Marketplace.org to read more about the business of bias training over the years. You're listening to Marketplace Weekend. If you've been getting a ton of emails from companies about privacy updates, this segment is for you. Those updates are all related to a law that just went into effect in the European Union, the General Data Protection Regulation, also known as the GDPR. And there's a big impact here in the U.S., too. To break it all down, we've got Molly Wood, host of Marketplace Tech, with five things you need to know about the GDPR. Let's get started. GDPR stands for General Data Protection Regulation. It is a set of laws for data privacy that was actually approved by the European Parliament in 2016. And after this two-year transition period, it is now law. It affects any company that handles the personal information of anyone in Europe. So that means any company that does business in Europe, even if it's based in the U.S. or somewhere else in the world. 
And GDPR regulations are much stronger than the privacy rules that currently exist in the United States. It basically says that companies have to get explicit permission to collect and use your data. They have to let you see what they're storing or even ask for it to be deleted, if you are in the EU, that is. Now, there are some other specifics in there about letting people take their data to other services and notifying authorities and users if there's a hack affecting personal data. But it's really ultimately about consumer control of the personal information that companies collect. And that brings us to the second thing you need to know, why this is happening in the first place. Well, the European Union, of course, being made up of lots of different countries, has a lot of rules around privacy and data collection and how data should be stored by companies that aren't based in Europe. So really simply, the GDPR is an attempt to create one set of rules that everyone can follow, and it happened to use the most consumer-friendly set of rules. The U.S., on the other hand, essentially has no federal privacy regulations around data collection, use, or notification. And the big difference is really just cultural. Privacy is considered a human right in Europe, and of course, it is a much more regulation-friendly government. American citizens historically have had a lot less concern about trading information for free goods or services like email or social media or photo sharing. And so rules at this level have so far not seemed necessary. So what does this mean if you're in the U.S.? That's the third thing. That depends on the company. In the short term, the regulations mean a whole lot of emails containing updated terms of service and privacy policies, which you have probably already noticed. But some companies like Microsoft have said they're going to make the rules of the GDPR standard for every user, even people in the United States. So in theory, that could mean that you could call up Microsoft, ask to see what personal information they have about you, and maybe even ask them to delete it. If you're confused as a user, you're not alone. Businesses are, too. That brings us to number four. What do companies need to do to comply? Well, first, they have to figure out if this applies to them. Because it applies to every business that processes the information of anyone located in the EU, it's possible there are some businesses that don't realize maybe their mailing list goes international. So they have to get their data in order. They also have to know where it is, how to access it quickly, and how to make it available for any user who wants to see it or move it to another service. Companies are going to have to have a plan for notifying authorities or users if there's a hack. They need to make sure they're verifying the ages of their users because children's data is a big part of GDPR. And even if they don't understand exactly how to comply with the new rules because they are a little bit vague, experts I've talked to say companies should at least make a good faith effort to get consent from people in the EU to collect and use their information. So what do these changes mean long term? That's the fifth thing you should know about the GDPR. The GDPR is likely to have a trickle-down effect on big companies, especially. It will just be easier in the long run to have one set of behaviors for how you treat personal information instead of trying to have two systems for managing data, especially if your business is large, collects a lot of data, or is really international. And of course, it could also prompt other cities and states to craft new privacy rules in the image of the GDPR. California, for example, is working on very strong privacy regulations. But it's also important to note that GDPR is going to have a lot of downstream impacts on companies, and it's not clear what that's going to mean. I've had some startup CEOs tell me that they're not going to expand into Europe because these regulations and the potential fines, which could be up to 20 million pounds or 4% of annual revenue, are so scary. Other companies say it's going to make marketing much, much harder, and it could actually end up strengthening companies like Google and Facebook that have huge budgets and can easily comply. 
thanks to Molly Wood for the explainer. And if you want to hear more about the GDPR, check out Marketplace Tech's coverage of the new regulations at Marketplace.org. Here on the show, we like to break down the numbers behind the news. This long weekend's edition goes out to all the test takers, prom goers, and graduates. Teens by the numbers. With Marketplace's Eliza Mills and Sarah Menendez. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is... 36.6 million. That's how much a judge has ordered an Oregon teen to pay for damages caused by a major wildfire. The fire burned 75 acres and cost a whole lot of money to put out. The 15-year-old will be paying for his crime for at least 10 years through garnished paychecks and other means. On top of the whopping fine, he's also been ordered to write 152 apology notes. 26. That's the percentage of teens expected to hold down a job during the summer of 2024, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. The estimate follows a steady decline in working teens. In recent years, less than a third of American teens have spent their summers on the job. Pre-recession, summer employment for teens ranged from 46 to 58 percent. 20. That's the percentage of UK teens who are bribed to go to school, so says a new survey from the bank Santander. Well, not bribed exactly, but encouraged with more allowance money. One in five UK families pay their kids an extra £10 a week, about $13, for making it to school on time. Chores like cleaning were less lucrative for British kids, earning them only about five extra pounds. This year, Marketplace is covering the 10th anniversary of the financial crisis and the Great Recession with our series Divided Decade. One thing that's definitely better now is the job market. Unemployment is down to 3.9 percent. Employers even complain about labor shortages. That's good news for those graduating into this economy and very different from the generation graduating in May 2010. To take us back to that time, we have Marketplace's Mitchell Hartman. Hi, Mitchell. Hi, Lizzie. Good to be here. All right. So take me back and set the scene for us. Take me there. So it's the spring of 2010. Uh, The economy has now shed 8 million jobs, give or take. Unemployment is at 9.9%. One of the worst job markets for college graduates in a generation. Right now is not exactly an easy time to be looking for a job. Young people will soon be flooding the job market, already facing a nearly 10% unemployment rate. I went out to Loyola University that spring. It's a Jesuit school on Chicago's north side. And I'll just play you some tape. Uh, We called this story Lost Generation. I'm way up in the cheap seats at Loyola University, Chicago, watching a few hundred business school graduates get their diplomas. There's the cheers, the fist bumps, and the reality check. My name is George Blanco. I'm 21 years old, coming out with a degree in marketing and sport management. And my initial plan in the job search is to get a job, because I don't have one right now. I've been hired by an architectural boat tour here in Chicago, and I will be working as a bartender. I'm moving back home to Kansas for 
not sure. I am stuck in retail indentured servitude at Urban Outfitters. Listening to those voices, you can hear the fear and uncertainty about, you know, graduating into that economy. Um, How did things turn out? I tracked two of them down now. Uh, It's the first two voices you heard in the montage. So George Blanco, he's the sports marketing guy. Yep. Um, He remembered that graduation day with such pride. His parents are immigrants from Bolivia. He's the first in his family to go to college. For a couple of years, he tried to get entry-level sports marketing jobs in Chicago. Uh, He says what he discovered is it's who you know, not what you know, and he didn't know anyone. So he moved back home to New Jersey. Uh, He broadened his search, was looking in PR and advertising, and pretty soon he was on the career train. So I've been at advertising agencies my entire career. I've been at five agencies in eight years, uh, so a bit of a bouncing around. Now that I've been in this, uh, I've really been entrenched and uh, have really loved my career to to this point. He's living in Manhattan. Uh, He's making six figures. He's engaged. Uh, Life is good for George Blanco. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, The the second person we heard who said she was going to bartend, that's Katie Fagan. Uh, What happened to her? Well, uh, she's not making six figures, let me tell you that. In 2010, the joke was on me because when you have a bachelor's in psychology and a bachelor's in religious studies, you're basically not qualified to do anything, you know, other than like bartending or waitressing or what have you. Eventually, she decided to go back to school. She got a master's in social work, ran up a little more student debt. She's running a memory care facility now. It's a pretty responsible job. She's married. She has a little condo in Chicago. She's about to have her first baby. Uh, She's extremely excited about about that, and she is also worried about it. I think I would be lying if I said that, you know, I definitely don't have moments where I think, oh my goodness, I am so educated and I paid all of this money for these degrees. And truly, my salary is very modest. And I just do try to harken back to my more idealistic self of saying, no, the point is not necessarily to make a ton of money. The point is to make a difference in other people's lives. You know, listening to Katie and George We know their stories. You track them down. But what do we know about kind of graduates of the Great Recession era in general? How unlucky are they statistically? Um, Reasonably unlucky. Uh, Recession graduates get worse starting jobs. They tend to be paid a little less. And it takes longer for them to be promoted and advance in a career. So the financial cost uh, is anything from sixty to as much as $100,000 that's in lost earnings compared to a non-recession graduate over the first seven to 10 years after graduation. Do, do those effects ever wear off? You know, do they ever stop being behind the eight ball and catch up? Well, it does seem that over time, they do. Uh, They eventually get to the same salary and job title and are pretty much indistinguishable from non-recession graduates, except, of course, they haven't earned a bunch of money. They haven't, you know, put it into retirement savings. They may not have saved for a down payment. But, you know, there is an important caveat here, and that is that not all graduates into a recession come out equal. Economist Till von Wachter, he's at UCLA, he's done some of the seminal research on this. Higher educated individuals, individuals with a college degree, converge faster than, say, individuals who just have a high school degree or even high school dropouts. Von Walker told me that college graduates on average take about 10 years to catch up. Uh, Those with less education, as well as African Americans, even with a college degree, are looking at about 15 years. That means many of them are probably still lagging behind from the Great Recession today. Marketplace's Mitchell Hartman, thank you so much. You're welcome, Lizzie.
You can see photos of Katie Fagan, one of the students Mitchell interviewed, on Instagram. We're at Marketplace APM. And let us know how the financial crisis changed you with the hashtag HowWeChanged. Stay with the graduation theme here for a minute and zero in on HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities, and a complex equation involving courts, money, and segregation. But first, meet Stormy Green from Mississippi Valley State University's class of 2019. She's majoring in health and physical education with a minor in biology, and she's got a special role at MVSU. She's Miss MVSU. This year, I serve from the influential, renowned HBCU from the oasis of the Mississippi Delta as the 66th Miss Mississippi Valley State University. To be queen means setting a standard. So my intentions are to leave a legacy here at NVSU and carry myself with grace, compassion, and willingness for the future. The thing I love about NVSU is that it's home. I love the small, conclusive environment it holds. Our motto is we are one goal, one team, and one valley in motion. Now to the money story. Back in 1975, Green's alma mater and two other HBCUs in Mississippi were involved in a landmark case to desegregate higher education. The Ayers case, as it's known, wound its way through the courts for nearly 30 years and ended in a $500 million settlement for the state's historically black institutions. That money is now running out. Adam Harris wrote about this for the Chronicle of Higher Education. He says the money has done some good, but that public universities in Mississippi are still deeply segregated. There have been gains. You know, they have new buildings or sometimes they have new programs. Some of them are sustainable. Some of them aren't sustainable. I think that there are still some very fundamental problems that, you know, the government isn't really focusing in on since Mississippi, according to them, has has proven that they've desegregated their higher education system by by uh, settling the Ayers case. You know, this raises a really interesting question when we talk about desegregation. What does it mean to desegregate an HBCU. Yeah, and and that is the question that people are grappling with. Most people place the onus of desegregation on black colleges. It's almost like blaming them for their history, which hmm. which they were created to to serve uh, an under underserved population. You know, right, black a population that wasn't of, being um, served by by the rest of the educational system. Yeah, they were they were essentially shut out of of higher education. So there are still some baked in structural inequities that. Uh, that the Supreme Court talked about where where they're asking questions of the state like, is there a difference between a institution that has been historically underfunded and a institution that's not been historically underfunded? And, and the state tried to argue that no, because now students have genuine freedom of choice and they can go wherever they want. But we've seen that when that's the case, 99% of white students in Mississippi are going to predominantly white institutions. Um, and black students have started to go to different institutions in Mississippi, but even then, you've started to see um, enrollment declines uh, among black students at the predominantly white institutions in the state. We talked to a student who was really proud of being at MVSU and her experience there, and I guess I was hoping you could put into context why a school like that is so important when there is, as you've said, 
choice, when, when a student could go anywhere? I think there are a couple of factors that, that lead students to choose HBCUs. I, I personally went to an HBCU. I went to Alabama A&M University. And, and there's a very important role that black colleges are still playing. You know, there are not that many black colleges in the country. They represent 3% of the nonprofit institutions, public institutions in the country. Um, and they graduate 17% of black students um, and account for 24% of black science, technology, engineering, and math graduates. Mm-hmm. Um, even in Mississippi, it's, it's greater than that, where they had 45% of, of black first-time students who were un- earning undergraduate degrees. So I think that the fact that they're still educating a disproportionate amount of students is something that um, is important and it, and it puts into context this historical legacy and this role that they're still actively playing um, for a lot of, of low-income students and black students. What happens in Mississippi when the settlement money runs out? As the former commissioner of their higher education system says, they have to compete. And black colleges in Mississippi are fighting for funding and students with one arm handcuffed by history. Mm. And it is going to be difficult for them to compete. So it it has yet to be seen. Um, But, you know, other states are, are looking at this and saying, how are we going to make sure our, our black colleges are sustainable? Yeah, before I let you go, I want to ask you about what's happening in Maryland, because there's a, a sort of similar situation being hashed out there. Can you explain it for us a little bit? It is similar, but they're concerned that if they accept, you know, the offer that the state has put on the table where the governor said that we'll give you up to $100 million over the span of a couple of years, that if they do that, they will end up in the same position that Mississippi's ended up in. And so they are really fighting for sustainable programs, you know, distinctive programs that will draw students, and they want the state to make sure that none of those programs are duplicated because that's one of their main issues. A black college will get a program and then a white college not too far down the road will get a similar program and where will the student end up going um, or the white student end up going? They'll probably end up going to the white college as opposed to the black college. Adam Harris is a staff writer for The Atlantic and he wrote about HBCUs and funding for the Chronicle of Higher Education. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. We have another story about education. If you ask an entrepreneur how they learned the business of, well, business, they'll probably tell you they had to learn on the job. But if you're a high school kid dreaming of starting your own business, there's another way to learn how to do it. Virtual Enterprise, a program for high school students from around the country. And about a thousand of them recently came here to New York for something that feels a little like a science fair about business. Shaheen Einpour has our story. New York's Pier 92 Convention Center is buzzing with teenagers, and they've all got something to sell. We sell pets and pet supplies. We are a company that delivers gasoline to your car. And we produce pre-bottled shade-grown iced coffee. From the top, that was Ian Hall from Loretto, Tennessee, Jesse Candell from East Rockaway, New York, and Ashley Clement from Cooper City, Florida. Ashley is the head of marketing at Tropi Coffee. It grows its coffee in the shade, which protects the rainforest since farmers don't have to cut down any trees to let sunlight in. So I see you have a bottle, though, right there. Is that real? Yes, that is real coffee. How many bottles of coffee? Just two. (laughs) 
Those bottles, they're just prototypes. Nothing here is actually for sale. It's all part of a nonprofit education program called Virtual Enterprise, or VE. It's a business simulator for high school kids, and schools pay around $3,000 a year for the program. About 450 schools in the U.S. take part. Each class comes up with an idea for a pretend company, and the students interview for jobs. Yes, so it's kind of like a big game of Monopoly almost. Complete with its own version of Monopoly money, an online currency the kids earn as wages, then spend on things like shade-grown coffee. Instead of exams, you're graded on job performance. And if you aren't pulling your weight, you can get demoted. So, what's the point of all this? Tropic Coffee CEO, Matthew Plonskier. Everything before this class was really me doing work for myself, you know, whereas here, in order to operate as a successful company and accomplish what needs to be done, you really have to work together. In other words, it's about soft skills, the kind you can't really learn from a textbook, says Amari Singletary, a student from Columbia, South Carolina. You definitely want to learn how to talk to people, how to get to the point, for sure. And when you talk to people, you want to make sure you have a good attitude, good enthusiasm, look them in their eye, versus like, hey, I know all these statistics about my company, but, you know, if you can't talk to anyone, those statistics mean absolutely nothing. All right, so that's why you're staring me down right now. That's why I'm looking at you right now. Yeah, <laughs> I'm staring at you really hard. Sorry. But Amari and the other students here aren't just learning about balance sheets and eye contact. They're test driving future jobs. Nick Chapman is VE's president, and he says these students will end up making better career choices as a result. Over 75% of our alumni identify that they're still in the career that they identified in VE. When I was in high school, I wanted to be a private eye like Veronica Mars. Let's say I'm still working on it. In New York, I'm Shaheen Ayanpour for Marketplace. now a little news to share with all of you. Marketplace Weekend is ending. We'll keep producing shows through the month of June, and we will air some of our favorite pieces in July. We've still got some great stuff in the works for you before we go off the air, including special reporting on the economics of disability. So now's the time to write in. Ask us your burning questions about the economy, life, and where the two meet. And let us know what have been your favorite Marketplace Weekend stories. I am so grateful to all of you, our listeners, and everyone who's joined us on the show. On this show, we talk about big economic ideas all the time. Money, the markets, trade, labor. But all this stuff came from somewhere, or rather, some time. So let's take a look backwards, away from the news, at a different money story. The story of where the idea of economics came from, and why that's important today. So I'm Eve Epstein. I'm an editor at Marketplace. I look at words all day long. And of course, I also think a lot about economics because that's what the show's about. And one day, I wondered this very basic question, where does the word economics come from? Economics. 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 Anyone? Anyone? And I instantly knew that the person who might know the answer is my friend, Ellen Millender, because she's a professor of classics at Reed College in Portland, Oregon. So, Ellen, I have to ask you, where did economics come from? The word, is that from a Greek word? Well, if you want an expert on economics, you came to the wrong person, Eve. But if, but if you want to know where the word comes from, you came to the right person. And it does indeed come 
from Greek, we have an ancient work called the Oikonomicus. A book, a scroll. A- so, but well, originally it would have been a scroll, right? Now um, I have it in book form. Oikonomicus comes from two Greek words, but the most important word for us is oikos, uh, which means household. I figured that that an economist would know about this work, right? So, I paid a visit to my friend John Rourke, who is an economist at Reed. Hello, John. And I brought along my copy of the Oikonomicus, and was I surprised? Okay, so so in economics, like how far back do you go in history? Like where would you say economics began with your study? Like Stone Ages, um, ancient Greece, possibly ancient Rome. Oh gosh, no, not that far back. Seriously? Yeah, yeah, no. You're serious? Nothing about a- ancient Greece? No. Okay, so John, <laughs> see this book? Yeah. Okay. Okay. The Oikonomicus. So are you telling me that you have never been introduced to the Oikonomicus? I can pretty much say with 100% certainty that most economists have not been introduced to hippopotamus, oikopotamus, what, what, what is it? <laughs> so Ellen, proving that she knows the origin of this word, oikonomicus, even though economics professors may not have learned it in school. And call it hippopotamus. <laughs> But Ellen, you know, I know that Aristotle is credited with um, coming up with the idea of scientific study. The physician heals. Nature makes well. He's so overrated. Plato Plato came up with philosophy and political philosophy. Thinking, the talking of the soul with itself. But who wrote Oikonomicus? Well, the author is someone I'm sure you've never heard of. This is a guy named Xenophon. Xenophon is an Athenian. He's born around 430 BCE. He was not just a writer. This is a man who was also a man of action. So in the year 401 BC, Xenophon goes off as a mercenary under Cyrus the Younger um, to go take the throne from Cyrus's brother. And this army of mercenaries called the 10,000 gets stranded in literally modern-day Iraq, in Mesopotamia. Um, And they have to fight their way back through snow, Barbarians, honey that makes people psychotic. Honestly, honey, honey, honey from a yellow rhododendron. And uh, Xenophon records this in a work known as the Anabasis, which became the basis of a cult film, The Warriors. We know about the Warriors. They're a heavy outfit. Between them and safety stand twenty thousand cops and a hundred thousand sworn enemies. I want them all. I want all the Warriors. Things don't end there. So he comes back to Greece. He's exiled from Athens sometime in the the 390s. And then he becomes sort of an armchair everything. He writes all kinds of works, including this work, The Oikonomicus, probably sometime around 362 BC. So I have to point out here, it's home economics. Yes. But it was written by a guy who was far from home, (laughs) served as a mercenary soldier, was out killing people. You know, I might have expected that it a work like this would have been written by a Greek domestic goddess, somebody who actually stayed home and knew what home management was about. So why did he get interested in that? Why did he start writing it? You know, that's an interesting question. It's so funny, Eve, when you say home economics, I think of, of making bad sweaters. The girls learn about how clothing is manufactured and other Learning food when I was Or in my case, learning sewing, which I never right. really caught on to. Xenophon is really interested in the idea of gentleman farming and in a sense how how one 
one should ideally run a household in Athens. What's fascinating about it is he really respects the female contribution to the household, unlike really most other Greek authors. It's highly unusual. And what does he say that is? The man brings the goods into the house and the woman ensures that the goods are properly utilized, properly stored. She's the one who manages the slaves in the household. Because the woman was physically less capable of endurance, the god has evidently assigned the indoor work to her. The idea is that what goes on in the household is equally important to what goes on outside the household. So I've got to ask you, Ellen, you talk about slaves, you talk about someone who's a landowner. Would that have been a typical Greek household? It sounds, frankly, like a wealthy household. Granted, the work is idealized, and this man probably has more money than your average Athenian, but for the state to be well-ordered, right, the households that make it up, the oikoi, right, have to be well-ordered. But there sounds like there's a darker side, too, that the woman, perhaps, and certainly the slaves, their labor's being exploited in some way in this household. What is the darker side to this idealized portrait of the home? Economic exploitation is part and parcel of Athens, right? The household survival is dependent on the sexual segregation of women, even though he respects women's labor. Um, More uh, problematic is the exploitation of slaves on a huge scale. You may have something as high as one slave per three or four Athenians. Athenian democracy uh, was built on and could not have survived without the exploitation of women and slaves. It's pretty dark. Absolutely. So how did this play in the ancient world? The democracy's very survival, right, is dependent on the constant inflow of money from land, which is being tilled by slaves, or from the tributary allies. So bringing that to modern times, I I wonder what Xenophon would have thought about how this whole now science of economics. The market Neo-Marxian economics. Neoclassical economics. Behavioral economics. What would he think if he were to come back today and see where oikonomics has gone? I think in some ways he would be shocked by the fact that we so discount, right, the work of women in their households. I think politics and economics, they're, they're certainly going to be intimately connected in his head, but I think in, just in a very different way. Our economy would be unrecognizable. You want to see what oikonomicus may have looked like? Well, you can go to our website, marketplace.org. If you have wondered where you came from, beyond calling up your oldest relative or combing through a family tree, a whole industry has popped up to help. Ancestry.com, 23andMe, and the like. But if you're not white, well, it's harder, as Michael Kim in Chicago found out. So I took the uh, Ancestry.com kit, spit in a tube, and sent it in to figure out if there are any skeletons in my closet. I'm Korean. At home, growing up, we had this leather-bound book. must have been, you know, six inches thick that I think is like the national registry of every clan there is. So I was hoping for some sort of surprise. If not, you know, maybe just confirmation that I truly am 100% Korean like my parents always told me. Got an email. Your results are in. So, like, receiving a college admissions letter, I'm like, oh, you know, clicking, 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 trying to log in and see what, what the results are. I click in, and um, lo and behold, they said, you are 
Asia. So it was accompanied by a map of the world with the continent of Asia circled, saying, you are from here. <laughs> it's like one quarter of the Earth's area circled by a, a yellow highlighter there. I don't know. I, I guess at some level it was initially funny, but at another level it was also just kind of disappointment. You think that at the, at the very minimum they can drill down a little more than Asian. It's like taking a Chinese guy and casting him as a Japanese guy in a movie. Just kind of lumps all Asians together and here's kind of reinforcement from the website. Truly just disbelief that I spent a hundred bucks to find out that I'm Asian. I'm like, thanks. <laughs> that was Michael Kim from Chicago. We reached out to Ancestry.com for comment, but they didn't get back to us by the time of recording. You can check our website for more information. Now, and indeed after some public criticism, these types of services are hoping to make their genetic databases more racially robust. This summer, 23andMe will award grants to researchers to get more DNA into their system. Joanna Mountain is senior director of research at 23andMe. And I asked her why non-Caucasian people are underrepresented in genetic databases in the first place. It's not that long ago that the main studies kicked off, and mainly these, these were conducted in the U.S. and Europe. We have seen change over time, but there's still a long way to go in terms of having genetic studies represent the entire globe. And, you know, for a layperson who's listening to this, they might expect they spit in a tube, send their DNA in, and what they get back is sort of a, a profile based on everybody in the world. But th that's not the case. It's based on a sample. Can you sort of explain why sample size matters? If I want to show that you have ancestry from Eastern Africa versus Western Africa, I need a lot of representatives to see the subtle differences genetically between those regions. I mean, isn't there sort of a weird catch-22 there? Because sort of in order to get, you know, more robust data sets, you need more people of varying backgrounds to buy the kits. But if they feel like maybe they're not getting fully accurate results, are they then not going to buy the kits? You know, I was sort of wondering how that works out. I mean, we have benefited from customers with very diverse backgrounds signing up, and that has led us to grow our reference panels for many countries across Europe and across the world. But there remain gaps, and so we have several initiatives that we are you know, using to fill in those gaps. The most underrepresented countries in the world for 23andMe are countries in sub-Saharan Africa, in Central Asia, and in Southeastern Asia. Do you think a non-white customer can trust that the data they're getting back from 23andMe is accurate? We have um, always included some sense of accuracy. So we have a little slider bar where you can select if you want results at the speculative level or the, a more conservative level. So we give the ability to check to see how robust their results are. Where do you want to see your data sets go in two years, five years? After all, this is a very quickly moving field. First of all, geographically, have people representing every corner of the world. But then, if you look within any country, you're going to find cultural groups. I see us going beyond just geography, but thinking about cultural and linguistic groups as well. 
That was Joanna Mountain, Senior Director of Research at 23andMe. And now for something completely different. You might know them as feral swine, wild boars, feral hogs, wild pigs. No matter what you call them, they are often a nightmare for farmers. Feral hogs cause approximately $1.5 billion in damages and other costs in the U.S. every year. And about a quarter of that is in Texas, which is where Marketplace's Andy Euler is. Hi, Andy. Hey, Lizzie. Okay, catch me up. Where did the wild boars come from in the first place? So wild boar were brought over in the 1500s as a food source. Basically, the folks that came over here, settlers from Europe brought them over. And then they were reintroduced in the 1900s uh, when Russian and Eastern European breeds were brought over for exotic sport hunting. The problem here in Texas uh, probably started in the 1970s or 1980s because private landowners started moving feral hogs to their land because they wanted something they could hunt year-round. Well, so how did we go from year-round hunt to (laughs) feral hog problem? So the thing is, these hogs reproduce incredibly quickly. Now, I talked to uh, an economist, Stephanie Schwiff. Uh, She's a research economist at the USDA who works on the feral hog problem. She told me that it's not just the growth of the pig population, but they spread bacteria into the watershed. They destroy fences. They they trample crops. Their destructive economic impact, she said, is, is basically unheard of. Because of what they can do, they can transmit all these diseases. They can... They'll eat anything. They'll, they really will eat anything and destroy things like, you, you know, you, you can't even really think of. They are going to be the worst invasive animal that we'll ever see. Wow. Yeah. What, what does their impact look like? You yeah. have been there, talked to farmers. What do you see? So I was out at a few different farms this week, and farmers were showing me exactly what these hogs were capable of. At a wheat field in San Saba County, which is about a couple hours northwest of Austin, feral pigs had eaten or trampled half of the wheat on about 3,000 acres of land. Half. The ranch hand who showed me said they'd had the problem all year round, and these pigs have adapted to become mostly nocturnal because they know farmers aren't going to be up and able to catch them after sunset. So that's when they get out and cause all this damage. Wow. So so <laughs> what do the landowners and the authorities in Texas do? What's their plan? Sure. So landowners I spoke with are are basically at their wits end. They're trying to figure it out. They're hiring helicopter crews to shoot the hogs from the sky. I actually went on a helicopter hunt a few weeks ago. It was interesting. Um, Two gunners lean out of the helicopter, shoot machine guns at these pigs who are scurrying away. Business owners are trying to turn this problem into a business as best they can, but everybody I talk to says it's not enough. Perhaps the most controversial approach, even more controversial than killing these hogs from a helicopter, is a trial of a chemical toxicant. Sodium nitrite is what they're using. And it would be put into baits that would basically smoke the pig from inside. It would it would basically rot the pig um, inside out. Ugh. Now, Schwiff at the USDA is working with the team developing the poison and says it's it's something of a last resort. Really, nobody likes a toxicant from your general public to, to producers don't like it anymore. It's super unpopular, but we've kind of are at the point where 
you were running out of options, and we're certainly running out of options that are economically feasible. The USA is working on this, and trials have already begun here in Texas, but they're telling me it's probably going to take two rounds of inspection by the uh, EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, and the Food and Drug Administration to make sure this product doesn't have unintended consequences for the land, for the watershed, or for other wildlife that comes in contact with it. That's a big sort of deal. Everyone I talked to can't wait to get their hands on it. Those landowners just, they said it would fly off the shelves. But USDA says it's probably going to take three, four, even five years before anything actually gets introduced to the public. Marketplace's Andy Euler in Texas. Andy, thank you. No, thank you, Lizzie. You can check out photos from Andy's reporting at Marketplace.org. And that is it for the show this week. Marketplace Weekend is produced by Eliza Mills, Peter Ballinon-Rosen, and Paulina Velasco. Joanne Griffith is our executive producer. Special thanks this week to Katie Long. Drew Jostad is our engineer. Our theme music is composed by Noreen Rao. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening. This is APM.